It's a whole other way of thinking about biology. Brain's constantly changing. Let me play my part. Check two, hey. Like, is that real? Did that happen? Like, the structure of your brain actually changes. And do you still feel that every day? And then it got time for guitars. Eating disorder, like, I didn't want to die. Tendencies. But I didn't want to live. Help little girl. You gotta go in the hospital. You feel powerless because the body has a fear reaction. The opportunity to empower. No one can take away my power. I won't take myself out. Artists that are true like that, those are the ones that tend to like create change. Well, let's talk about some positive stuff. Um, well, first of all, do you have a hard stop? Because we haven't talked about epigenetics yet. Um, we can we can roll as long as you'd like to. Cool. Um, okay. I don't cool. know. If, yeah. Whatever. Okay. Whatever works for you. Well, I want to talk about. I always try to end on something positive. Since we just went down like the darkest of holes I've ever yeah. been in, I want to make sure that we climb back out of it for our listeners. Um, but let's talk about epigenetics first, because I just learned this word yeah. yesterday prepping for this meeting, <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm really fascinated with this this thing about nature and nurture yeah but is it always such a clean-cut line this person was like no it's not actually they affect each other mm-hmm. so let's start from the beginning remember this is not a podcast just for academics yeah. i'm certainly not one yeah. what is epigenetics sure um and talk about you were just in europe yeah i was just in i was just the last month i was in europe for the first time um but i spent 10 days in venice um where there was a meeting of the minds from scientists from all around the world specifically on the epigenetics um, of resiliency, right? Um, and I can talk a bit about this more, but it was a it was a workshop specifically on understanding the neurobiology of depression um, from an epigenetic perspective. So this is a it's a buzzword that I feel like has gotten a lot of attention recently. Um, you used a phrase that I'm sure more people are more familiar with: this nature versus nurture. Sure, argument. they've been teaching that forever, right? right? We have genes in our DNA. That are passed down from our, from our, uh, from our parents, right? They code the blueprints of our entire biological makeup, um, and it's how we pass heritable characteristics from generation to generation. Mutations happen along the way. Some, you know, people have been studying genes and how different individuals' genes are that might explain why you inherited a certain trait. Um, and that's kind of the, the nature side of the nature versus nurture argument is that it's kind of hard coded into our DNA versus the nurture side of the argument. Um, nurture meaning any experience we go through, right? From day one when we're born or even before we're born, when we're a fetus, um, any exposure that we encounter carries weight in sculpting our behavior, right? That's, people have always pitted those things against each other. Like it's either your experiences that are driving you to be who you are in your adulthood or you're programmed like this from the get-go and which that, also and rules no... out personal accountability because those are both external factors <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. there we've gone back to free will in a circle yeah. here so epigenetics is this field uh, right epi that prefix epi just means on top of okay. right? right it's just this something writing on top of the genetic factor that influences how our genes work um and i mean the the kind of just the background is you have genes, your DNA, every gene, um, you know, 
carries strips of a genetic code that can basically give your body the blueprints to make certain proteins or to make other regulatory players in our biology that influence the proteins we make, that influence the way our cells work, and that ultimately gives rise to our organ systems, our brain development, and then ultimately influences our behavior. Um, that's how you go from genes all the way up to living biology is all the building blocks that makes a cell function are encoded by the blueprints of the DNA. The interesting thing with epigenetics, this whole field of study is what's regulating our DNA, right? The DNA is the blueprints, right? Something needs to read it. Is it unchangeable? Absolutely. It's there before you're born. You can't do anything about it. Not necessarily true. And that's what this whole idea of having the blueprints is just one thing. There's so many factors that if you're the architect building a cell and you have all the blueprints laid out in front of you, sometimes those blueprints are rolled up and you are going to build your house a different way. You have the blueprints for that, for your house. You have the scaffolding of how you would want to build it, but there might be 50 different scrolls of blueprints rolled up. And there are a million other factors that go into whether or not you unroll that blueprint to even take a look at it. Right. And so this whole concept of epigenetics is your DNA library is a giant book that can either be closed or opened, or I can open up segments of that book and close other segments of that book. And our experiences absolutely give rise to how open or closed our DNA library is. How open for business is it? How much are we going to let this gene that we've inherited from our parents be expressed or not? Oh, God, right? there's a huge question. There's it's a huge question, <laughs> but I, I mean, it's, it's a whole world. And the, oh. the, the professor who led this, he's at Mount Sinai in New York. His name is Eric Nessler. Um, he's one of the um, big names in the field as far as understanding the mechanisms of epigenetics. How can I take an individual that has gone through an experience and then look to see how accessible their DNA is even open to reading, right? Mm-hmm. And they study stress and models of PTSD or depression. Um, They're working with humans, but also working with lab rats and mice to try and study this. Um, But this idea that an experience you go through can just roll up those blueprints and prevent your DNA from even being looked at or unroll segments of your DNA that are closed off. Prevent it from being looked at puts you more on like autopilot, like you have less control over your decisions. I'm not even going that far. I'm still what talking at the mean? molecular level. Oh, molecular, right? not the even the building making. blocks of proteins and molecules that are floating around in your cell. The absence or presence of those molecular building blocks can be either turned up or turned down, based on what aspects of your DNA are open or closed to being read, um, and experiences can absolutely change that. Way down the line from that is all these molecular building blocks that are either more present in the cell or less present in the cell could give rise to all sorts of things that we're trying to understand. This might make this one brain cell now fire more actively. And who's, who's to say what that overactive brain cell is doing? That might make you more susceptible to the next stressful episode. Or it might make you more resilient to the next stressful episode. Are those the... Uh the yin and yang resiliency and, and susceptibility. Is that how you think of it? I think though the, that whole workshop in Venice that I was at with Dr. Nessler was on understanding resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want to understand what might be malfunctioning in a depressed individual, instead of trying to figure out what's quote unquote broken and trying to repair it, what if we can understand the brain of individuals who are resilient? What's different about those individuals, both at the brain cell level, but then even diving deep into the DNA 
what's happening to their genetics and epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Um, are certain experiences that resilient individuals are going through keeping parts of their DNA closed up, those, those blueprints rolled up and prevented from being open and flexible to change? And something about that, the regulators that keep those genes closed up, maybe something about that is what makes these individuals resilient. Mm-hmm. And could we do something to an individual that can help change genetic expression on that level? Um, it's a whole other way of thinking about biology. Um, just the interplay between experiences and whether or not your genes can even either be turned on or turned off are absolutely fluid and more complex than we ever thought. Yeah. Um, so nature and nurture are happening all the time in a really dynamic way that we're really just starting to understand. That's one of the things I want people listening to know is like, you know, a lot of people have dealt with stuff from someone who, with whom they share DNA and, and they might wonder for the rest of their lives, like, am I carrying that? Right. And uh, is that a part of, is that inside me? Right. Is, is, is what made them do that to me something that I carry as well? And I just, I want people to know that, like, your legacy is not a prison sentence. The, mm-hmm. mind, the mind is plastic. You can reinvent yourself. You can think yourself well. I know that this is optimistic, but you've you studied resiliency. It's a real thing. Yeah. I mean, you even, I like, the analogy you use is, is funny, right? You said the mind is plastic, right? You would have uh, brought up that term, say, 50 years ago in neuroscience or further. Dead in the water. The adult brain is incapable of change is what people would say, right? And they would pound on a desk. Yeah, they right? were thinking of their, their grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> Still uses the same but hammer that, he got from that his was, grandfather. But that was like hearsay back then, that the adult brain, it's made the connections it's made. The, the developmental window has passed. The adult brain is incapable of changing, right? That was the dogma back then. Yeah. Um, I'm not even talking about you know, you're born with every cell that you're going to have brain cell and that once you lose them, you lose them. I mean, there's research now saying that there's parts of the brain that can continue to create new cells, but just the idea that your brain is incapable of changing was kind of the standard idea of neuroscience back then. Um, when I was in San Francisco, um, a couple months ago, I, uh, meant, uh, I, I learned from one of, um, uh, one of the professors who kind of was around during this time of changing our understanding of how plastic the brain is. His name is Michael Mersnich. And just this idea that the brain is plastic, even the idea of that was empowering, that mm-hmm. you are still capable of causing and driving changes in your brain, right? And of course, that's now commonplace now. The brain's constantly changing. Every experience you go through, every memory you form is because some change happened in the brain. Some physical change happened in the brain. Now, Take that analogy to genetics, right? People said you, what you're born with is what you got. These genes sent you down a road that's predestined, predetermined. Couldn't control it. And, and it's insane how much we're learning about how your blueprints that you have, sure, that might predispose you to an increased risk of a certain type of disease later in life, has to go through a whole host of what your experiences and your own personal journey is that's going to give rise to how much those genes matter or not. Um, yeah. I think uh, it's insanely complicated. And if science has taught me anything, it's to keep an open mind because we're constantly reinventing or relearning what we thought was, was standard. Yeah. Man, okay, so we haven't talked about anatomy a ton. Let's go through like the, at least the, the usual suspects. Okay. Are all the memories in the hippocampus or are they all over the place? It de- uh, okay, depends on how you define a or memory. You, or you can just f- forget right? the question, just say whatever you want to say about what should the average person know about what's going on in their skull. Yeah. Name the parts. Okay. 
Um, if I were to leave the listeners with any one thing, it's just to kind of get rid of this idea that one part of the brain does one thing, right? Oh, okay. Right. It, there's no, I'm not going to point to any part of the brain and say, this is where pleasure is sensed. This is where memories are stored. Is that uh, changing? This is the fierce center of the brain. That's like my pet peeve, like center, right? <laughs> there are certain parts of the brain that are, I guess, more critical for other parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. If that part of the brain were to damage, um, say for a particular function, but as we're learning the brain is like a complex computer circuit and information is flowing from one part of the brain to the other. Um, and somehow throughout all of this complex highway, that's a giant ball of yarn is we somehow have information that's processed and refined that inform our behaviors in some shape or form. Um, our lab jokes that, you know, our lab is a lab that studies the hippocampus, which classically people say is important for memory. Mm -hmm. It's important for um, our map of the world and how we navigate through space. And these are from old school studies where people who had strokes in the hippocampus had memory issues or people who had damage to the hippocampus had problem navigating an environment. And these are studies that have been done over and over again. But our lab jokes in the fact that there is no real hippocampus. It's just a big bundle of cells that are talking to a hundred different parts of the brain all at the same time. And it just becomes a nexus or a complex intersection on a highway of information where if you were to take that out, you'd probably have problems with memory. But it's becoming way more complex than that because every individual cell in the hippocampus is talking to a hundred different parts of the brain at the same time. And it's receiving information from a hundred different connections. And so it's way more complex. The brain is a circuit. There's kind of no start and end to how information is flowing because whatever the hippocampus is doing, it's talking to the next part of the brain that's talking to the next part, that's talking to the next part, and then ultimately has you control your movements as you're making a choice. Mm. Um, so that's where kind of neuroscience and psychiatry is going, is that we're thinking about things as far as circuits, right? And information has to get from point A to point B to point C and point D. And what is, it, what is the brain doing with that information? Mm. And as far as memories go, um, there's a bunch of different definitions of different types of memories, right? Like there's the memory of what you had for breakfast this morning. That's a specific episode you can replay in your head. Um, and classically, people have said that parts of the hippocampus are responsible for that ability to kind of recall a very specific episode or experience. But then that gets stored, distributed throughout the brain, right? There's other types of memories we have that aren't very specific episodes, but rather it's kind of semantic knowledge, like math, understanding rules, um, learning how the structure of the world works that isn't necessarily an episode of what happened at 2 p.m. yesterday. And those can all live in different parts of the brain or actually live distributed throughout the brain. Every brain cell talks to other brain cells through synapses or connections where electrical activity releases neurotransmitters that then gets sensed by the next neuron and so on and so forth. And information gets propagated throughout the brain. And every one of those connections can get stronger or weaker as a result of every experience you go through. Hmm. So every one of those connections is just one form of how information can be stored. And it doesn't have to be in the hippocampus. It could be all throughout the brain. Here's a weird thing about thinking of the brain as a computer. Like, here's my PC right next to you. And, um, you know, everything in there is the truth. There's, if I took a picture of a red ball 10 years ago and I put it in there, um, it's a red ball today. How can I have wrong information of my own memories in my brain and I swear that ball is green and then I see a picture, you know, three years from now and I'm like, wait, how could I have yeah. remembered that wrong? Why is the brain literally capable of creating wrong information and storing it? Yeah. 
Um, we always use this analogy kind of in psychology or uh, neuroscience where unlike a computer that has separate systems for reading and writing information, um, the brain is kind of sim- simultaneously doing that at the same time. There's a long-standing um, neuroscience literature on, um, on memory consolidation and reconsolidation. And every time you access a memory, and by that I mean activate a constellation of neurons in your brain that had to do with that experience the first time you went through it, every time you bring that back up and you just simply look it up, like you open the, the, photo, the JPEG on your computer of the mm-hmm. red ball, it's subject to being rewritten every time it's accessed, right? That's fucked up. And there's a bunch of, <laughs> you think that's effed up. That's scary, you, you man. You think that's effed up. But people have been, psychology has been studying this for a while. Repe- repressed memory, suggestibility. Every time you bring up a memory, it's influenced by what's around you at that time, right? If I ask you to recall uh, that, that red ball mm-hmm. and I am playing with the environment every time I ask you that, I can slowly sculpt what else is in the background of that red ball picture that you're storing in your head. Gaslighting. Yeah, right? Um, but you think that's crazy. I mean, the neuroscience happening right now, trying to understand the neurobiology of accessing information, accessing the history that you've gone through, and then rewriting it at the moment you, you open it up. People are doing all sorts of exciting experiments. Even when I was uh, in Italy, there's someone trying to understand the epigenetics and at the same time, this idea of memory writing and rewriting. Um, and I'll just say that it's fascinating. The science behind it is super intriguing. It's exciting what we're able to do. Mm-hmm. And people are trying to understand false memories or rewriting information, putting an experience in the brain that never actually happened, or recalling an experience the animal went through or an individual went through in an experiment and adding information to it that um, can either rewrite it in a way that could be helpful for a disorder, for example, um, or, or erasing an aspect of information that was tied to a memory. Um, it's kind of like when you open the Pandora's box, it's subject to not be the same when you close it again. I can see writing a memory uh, in a way that protects you. Um, there was a movie. Did you ever see a movie called Memento? That's, one, that's my favorite Dude. movie. Dude! Yeah. It was a bit of an art film. I'm going to spoil yeah. it, so fast forward 10 minutes if you haven't watched it. Who's it, Val Kilmer? No, it was Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce and, Pierce. Guy Pierce that and movie um, blew me away at the Christopher end. Christopher Nolan. Okay, I'm going to describe it, so I'm going to ruin it. So fast forward now, because here it comes. Memento is one of the most mind-blowing movies I've ever seen. This guy has tattoos all over his body of... Uh, it says, my wife was raped and murdered. And it has it all over his body. And every time he remembers a new detail, he gets it tattooed on him. Because what, does he lose his memory every day or something? Yeah, I think during the, the incident where uh, he was attacked in the middle of the night and his wife got murdered, he suffered a head injury. And yeah, that gave that. him a form of amnesia and anterograde amnesia where he can't form new memories. So he keeps tattooing things and that's like his diary for his life. And then the plot twist at the end. Fast forward, you guys, I warned you. It never happened. She left him, and he can't deal with that, so he made up this whole other story. He just got dumped. Right. And that was more horrific um, for him. And, and like, I just got chills saying it to you just now, describing the plot, because yeah. that's, like, that's how the mind works, right? Like, yeah. okay, I can't deal with this. There's no way it's real. The, I'll write something new. The crazy part about that, about that situation is um, he had just enough insight into... So his memory kept getting erased every 10 minutes or so. When his, attention get, okay. when his attention gets distracted, it basically didn't store anything, right? That was his amnesia. He was able to consolidate new memories. So I think the interesting thing is that at some point, he had enough insight during that window of time over the course of five or ten minutes to, to realize what happened and then created an endless loop for him 
that would pre- that would prevent him from suffering. How realistic was that movie? I know it's sci-fi, but the psychiatry department and even the neuroscience department, <laughs> both here in Minnesota and in Chicago, love having movie nights with yep. all the professors and faculty and students get together, and then we just discuss the movie. Play um, our documentary. Yeah, so it's it's uh, there are cases like that type of amnesia that exists there um, in the world. There's there's famous cases of folks with uh, anterograde amnesia. Patient HM is a famous one. Um, there's many, many books about or patient EP. These are the two initials of patients that have had issues like this. They're in their medical mysteries. They've been staples in understanding the beginning of neuroscience um, and cognitive neuroscience. Um, I don't think it's BS. I, there's, obviously, it's a really fun, dramatic movie to yeah, watch. For sure. Um, but people are people have used um, those pa- those real patients and then even movies like these as platforms to talk about the complexities of the human mind. Um, it's a really, really, really freaking good movie. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite movies. Get the music behind the mission. Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movie. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is from Amplified!